Well, I hope you have your Bibles. Turn with me, if you haven't, to Ephesians chapter 4. And we've been studying the book of Ephesians now for a few weeks. And as you know, our goal is in the next few months to cover every single verse in the book of Ephesians. Well, today we're going to shift gears a little bit and we're going to go from focusing several weeks in a row on Ephesians chapter 1 to now spending some time in Ephesians 4. Now, don't think we're leaving a verse out. We're going to come back and hit everything. But I want you to see this shifting gears both in our sermon series, but also, more importantly, in the book of Ephesians. And this will speak to what we're going to cover this morning. So in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, what we see is a great deal of theology. We see doctrine. We see the story of what Christ has done for us. We've just spent three weeks on the first 19 verses of Ephesians chapter 1, and we have seen something of the salvation that is ours. So that's the focus of Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, and Ephesians 3. Well, then there are three more chapters, four, five, and six. And what we see here is something different, but connected. Four, five, and six tells us now here is how we should live. Because of what we learn, because of the great salvation that is ours as it is described in the first three chapters, so now, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, here's how that should influence how we live our lives. Now that puts Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 right in the middle of the book. This is the hinge point from the first part to the second part. And so I want us to start there. I want you to see how Paul writes this. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling that you have received. He begins with the word therefore, because of all of this, because we have been predestined, we saw in chapter one, because we have been redeemed, we saw in chapter one, because of the inheritance that we have received as we learned in chapter one. Therefore, because of all of that, now we should live worthy of this calling that God has given to us. And that introduces how we go about living the Christian life as is described in these in these next three chapters. Now, with that being said, I want you to skip down to verse 17 because this begins our focus today. And you'll see why we stopped at verse one because verse 17 is very similar to verse one. It's just a little more pointed. 17 says, therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their thoughts. Now, do you see how that is different? You see how it is the same. He says in verse 1 that we, now that we're saved, should live worthy of the calling that is upon us. And then in verse 17, he says the same thing, but adds that we should live differently from the Gentiles. Now, Gentiles here, he means those that are not believers, those who are not true Christians. Our conduct as Christians ought to be different from their conduct. In fact, that's really the whole message in a sentence. The way we live should be different than the way everyone else lives because of what Christ has done for us. 
But you know, that is a foundational principle that has been largely jettisoned in American Christianity. It's, it seems that we have created a Christianity that allows us to believe something, to agree with something, but, but at the same time never really change how we live. At the same time, it has little or no influence on our conduct. And we have in this pseudo-American Christianity, I think, separated what we believe from the way we live. And, and that's just not biblical. You know, the theologians would say that there are too many so-called Christians who have the right orthodoxy without orthopraxy. Now, here's what they mean by that. Orthodoxy is believing the right thing. Orthopraxy is practicing the right thing. And so we've created a faith where you can have one but not the other. The way the preacher would say it is no change means no Jesus. The way your grandmother would say it is that the proof is in the pudding, right? The way James, the half-brother of Jesus, said it is this. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. You show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And so, so many today, people struggle to connect what they believe with how they act, and we've created this whole new thing, this whole new religion that we call Christianity, but it's not. That's what we're going to see addressed in chapters 4, 5, and 6, but especially today. I thought I would begin by maybe describing this false Christianity to you uh, to see if there are elements of this that hit home. And so here it is. It isn't Christianity when it's just a tradition or a ritual. It isn't Christianity when it's just a, a ritual or a tradition. You know, there are a lot of ritual parts of our faith. We come together for worship every week, right? Uh, we, we participate in baptism and the Lord's Supper and prayer and Bible reading. They're just things that are a part. They're elements of the Christian faith. And all of those things are very good and valuable. But I want you to think about some other traditions that we have that, that are good traditions. There's nothing wrong with these things, but they're not really life-changing traditions. Things like birthday parties. You ever thought about that? Why do we have birthday parties? Why do we get a cake and put candles on it and set them on fire and blow them out. I think if somebody were observing us from, a, from another solar system, they would decide that that's one of the weirdest things that they've ever seen. But it's one of our traditions, right? It's a ritual. New Year's Day, New Year's Eve, that, that once a year we come together and we celebrate the, the calendar changed, okay? I mean, there's really nothing significant about it. Now, there's nothing wrong with birthday cakes and, and New Year's Day celebrations, but here's what I want you to see. We have often now made the Christian traditions, things like worship or baptism or a whole list of things, the same as blowing out the birthday cake. It's a tradition that maybe facilitates relationships or gives us a, a, a warm, fuzzy feeling. But, but many of these elements of Christianity 
have become things that no longer impact how we live our lives. And, and there are people who come to church on Sunday morning, and it's this tradition, and it's a big tradition, and it's an important tradition, but it's a tradition that outside of the little ceremony we do right here has no impact on how they live. That's not biblical Christianity. I'll give you another example. Sometimes uh, Christianity, the pseudo-Christianity, uh, becomes just a popular or a fashionable way to live. Uh, you know, in many places, being a Christian is, uh, is a bonus. Not in every place in the world, but in many places it is. And in Nacogdoches, if you have a business in Nacogdoches, it will not hurt your business for you to be known as a Christian, right? In most social circles in Nacogdoches, to, to have the Christian look is a positive, not a negative. And consequently, sometimes it's not a real faith, it's just it's just a popular lifestyle. It's just something we do to impress people. And it's just a fashion that we put on. And, and as such, fashions lie, right? I, I was thinking this week, I, I think I own about a half dozen fishing shirts that have never been fishing. You know what I mean? It's just a fashion that lies. I, I wonder how many of you ladies have uh, camouflage print pants that you have never used to hide your location, right? It's just a fashion that lies. And so sometimes our Christian practice is just something that fits into our community, but it doesn't tell the truth about our heart and our desire to live a life that pleases the Lord. I'll give you another one. Uh, it isn't Christianity when it's just a good luck charm to give you an edge in life. Sometimes people do a few Christian rituals or traditions because they think it can't hurt. Maybe like having a rabbit's foot, it, it, it's always good to have one more thing on your side. And it isn't real Christianity when it's just a lens through which we view the world. For some of us, our Christian faith is not a life-changing encounter with the true and living God. It's just, it's just the way the world makes sense to us. And so we see it through those lenses. Uh, but it doesn't change our lives. The problem is that often Christianity can be about everything except something that changes our conduct. I thought about a book this week uh, that I hadn't read in a very long time, <coughs> uh, but, it, but there was a story in that book. I'm struggling a little bit. I need a water, so I, I hate to... Pardon me. So it's better. I can. Uh, so, so there's this book. I was, I was recalling this book this week and uh, had, had a story in it. And I was able to go, go into our church library here and find this book. And I found this story and I want to read it to you. The book is called Christian Atheist by Craig Groeschel, a pastor in Oklahoma, I believe. But he tells the story about flying somewhere and there was a woman, a young woman who was seated next to him that he did not know. And they had a conversation. So here's what he writes. He says, before our plane took off, Michelle uh, struck up a conversation. Her name was Michelle. Uh, somewhat nervous about flying, she seemed eager to talk as if our chat might make the flight pass more quickly. 
So after describing her difficulties with balancing her checkbook and handling her divorced parents and her live-in boyfriend, who was scared to death of marriage, she asked me about my life. So I explained that I was married and had six children, and after some more small talk, Michelle asked me what I do for a living. So no longer able to dodge the question, I answered, well, as a matter of fact, I am a pastor of a church. And so this revelation gave Michelle permission to unleash a stream of Christian words and stories. Dropping the occasional, God told me, and God is good, she smiled softly as she described how she gave her life to Jesus at age 15 at a youth camp, and after praying sincerely, she was eager to get back to school to share her faith and live a life of purity and spiritual integrity. Michelle held on to her new belief in God, but she soon slipped back uh, into her old way of life. And as if in a confessional, Michelle continued to pour out her life's darker details. She looked down as she admitted that she was doing things uh, with her living boyfriend that she knew she shouldn't. And she told me she wanted to go to church, but was simply too busy working and studying she said she did pray many nights, mostly that her boyfriend would become a Christian like she was. She said, if only he believed in Jesus, then he might want to marry me. At last, Michelle expressed one final confession. She said, I know my life doesn't look like a Christian's life should look, but I do believe in God. See, there's an example of what this author calls a Christian atheist, someone who has the right beliefs, the right doctrines, but doesn't have the conduct that accompanies that. And so in chapters four through six, we see that conduct described. I want us to look beginning now in verse 18, and what we're gonna see is three verses that tell us um, why lost people live, unsaved people live like they do. But then we're going to see two or three verses that will tell us then how we can have a conduct that reflects the calling that God has given to us and brings honor and glory to God. So look at verse 18. It says of these Gentiles, these that did not know Christ, they are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts, they became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. Let me show you just quickly the three reasons, according to this, that lost people uh, act the way that they do. First of all, their understanding is darkened. He tells us that in verse 18, just the first few words. They are darkened in their understanding. These people are not informed or they do not believe, they do not really believe about eternity. And they don't know the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. They don't really comprehend heaven and hell and judgment. They don't have the inner light and the motivation of the Holy Spirit so of course they act differently 
than we would act. They, they don't have the information we have. They don't have the help that we have. They don't have the forgiveness that we know. Of course they will act differently. And so lost people, number one, act the way that they act because their, their minds are, are darkened. How else would they act? I think sometimes we just probably ought to cut those people a little bit of slack. They're sinners. They act like sinners. They're supposed to act like sinners. Sinners sin. That's what sinners do, right? And if you have somebody in your neighborhood or your family or somebody at your workplace that is always acting like a jerk, maybe you should just cut them a little bit of slack. If they don't know Christ, of course they act like that. In fact, the difference between you and them is not that you have some noble character that they don't have. The difference between you and them is the grace of God and the influence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so the first reason they act the way they act is they, their understanding is darkened. The second thing here is, is that their hearts are calloused. You see that at the beginning of verse 19. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity. The Holy Spirit pricks the hearts of every person. The Holy Spirit convicts. The, the Holy Spirit points to our sin. And we know that we're guilty of sin. And we feel guilt and shame. And the Holy Spirit does that so that we will ultimately turn to Christ and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if I refuse to turn to Christ when the Holy Spirit pricks my heart, eventually my heart will grow hard and calloused and I'll not hear from God anymore. You know, my hands uh, are, the, are the hands of somebody who does a whole lot of typing, not the hands of somebody who does a lot of digging. But if I took a shovel and I decided I was going to dig a trench around the perimeter of this church, I wouldn't get very far around the perimeter of the church before what would happen to my hands. They would be blistered, right? Because, because of the friction of the shovel on my hands, and I'm not used to that kind of work. And so if I did that, my hands would be blistered. But if I did it again the next week and the next week and the next week, eventually what would happen? Those blisters would turn to calluses, and they would be hard, and it wouldn't blister my hands anymore. And see, that's what happened to the hearts of so many lost people. The Holy Spirit has pricked their heart. The Holy Spirit has convicted them, and they've said, no, no, no. And each time they say no, it's as if there's a blister on their heart, but after so many no's, the blisters turn into calluses and their hearts are hard and calloused, as it says here in verse 19. And they're, they're numb to shame and guilt. This is one of the reasons why it's important that, that if, the, if, if the Holy Spirit of God is, is convicting you and leading you to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be saved, you can't postpone that. Because every time you postpone it, your heart just gets a little bit harder. And there will be a day when you will not be sensitive enough to the Holy Spirit any longer. So their hearts are calloused. But, but then there's a third reason here, also in verse 19, that they act the way that they act. Their desires are unsatisfied. It says they became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. So the Bible says that sin comes when desires run amok. And God has given us these desires, but when we seek to fulfill these desires in a way outside of God's provision, then that's sin. 
And when we chase after things, sinful things, we're simply trying to fulfill some desire in our heart. The problem is that sin, though, never satisfies a desire. Sin just inflames a desire. And so if you have a desire and you look outside of God and you chase after sin to meet that desire, the the desire will never be satisfied and you'll find yourself chasing after more sin and more sin and more sin. And that's what he describes right here in verse 19, every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more and more. Lost people behave the way lost people behave in part because their desires are never satisfied. So we Gentiles, if you look back to verse 17, we Gentiles are to be different. We're to be different because of what we've heard in in, in Ephesians 1, our study here, but in Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3, Paul says, because of what Christ has done for you, we should be different. Listen, church, your life should be different from the life of the people who live down the street from you. They should be, your life should be different from the lost person's life who works next to you. Our lives should be different, is what he says. And I know what, what many people are thinking. Um, I know that you're thinking this because I'm thinking this. Well, I want my life to be different. And, and, and certainly in some ways my life is different, of course, but, but I still have my own tub of sins that I wallow in from time to time. And, 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 and how then, Pastor, if, if our lives are to be different, and, and clearly they are, we shouldn't be living like the people around us, then how do I do that? Is is there something deficient in my faith that my life still has sin? Is there something wrong? Am I not genuinely a believer because there are still ways that my life looks just like everybody else's? I know that you wonder that. But there are two or three things here that, that, that are helpful. Sin absolutely matters much. But understand that this is a process. Overcoming sin is not like flipping a light switch. Uh, The Bible talks about the fact that when we are saved, when we're adopted into the family of God, that we're saved from the power of sin, rather the penalty of sin, but it takes time. Over time, we're saved from the power of sin. One day, we'll be saved from the presence of sin, but, but we're in a process right now. And certainly, our lives should look different. Of course, they should look different, but there's a process, and the process is described in part Verses 20 through, through 24. And so let's, let's look at those verses. He says, but this is not how you came to know Christ. He's just talked about how the lost people live. He says, but you're different. Assuming, verse 21, you heard about him and were taught by him uh, as the truth is in Jesus. And then he gives the instructions. To take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Let me tell you, according to these verses, how it is that you and I saved not because of what we've done, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ, that we have been redeemed by him, but we have been given the Holy Spirit to live different lives. How do we live the different life? Well, three things here. Number one, you need to choose a team. 
And, and really, this echoes back up to verse 17. There has to be a point in our lives, listen, church, there has to be a point when we decide we're going to change. There has to be a point where we, we decide we're not going to live like everybody else any longer. I want it to change. I want my life to honor God. I want to fully submit to the Holy Spirit. And I want God to change who I am. And there has to be this crisis moment. Church, there has to be this time in our lives when we decide that this is not just something that is a, a tradition for me. That this is not just something that my grandmother believes. This is something that I'm going to grab hold of and I want to live differently for the glory of God. And I, I thought about some of those crisis moments in scripture because it's described a bunch of different ways. I'll, I'll share just two or three with you. Uh, one is, uh, is the story of Joshua. And so Joshua in, in the Old Testament was coming to the end of his life, but, and, and he had led his people well, the nation of Israel. They were in the promised land and, and they were following God, but they were just sort of following God. They were following the one true living God, but they were also following all these pagan gods. And so Joshua gets to the end, and, and he really has one last sermon. It's his last sermon, so to speak. And here's what he says, Joshua 24, 14. He says, therefore, fear the Lord and worship him in sincerity and truth. Get rid of the gods that your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and worship the Lord. He says, it's time to put away all of this other junk that's in your life and it's time for you to worship the Lord and live for the Lord. But then what he says is this, but if it does not please you to worship the Lord, Choose for yourselves today, which will you worship? The God your ancestor wor ancestors worship be beyond the Euphrates River or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my family, we will worship the Lord. He said, if you're going to worship the pagan gods, if you're going to have all this worldly junk in your life, then fine. Then go that direction. But if you want to worship God, it's time to to draw a line in the sand. It's time to make a change. It's time to say enough is enough. And as for me and my family, he says, we will worship the Lord. I think about, uh, I think about David, King David, uh, way before he was king, the armies of uh, Israel were arrayed against the Philistines. And this is during the time of Goliath, who was this uh, champion of the Philistines. And Goliath would come out twice a day and he would taunt the armies of God and, and he would blaspheme God. And, and when he would do that, the, the, the Israelites would just quake in fear and they would run and they would hide. Well, one day, little David shows up on the scene and he witnesses this and he just can't believe it. And so he meets with the king, and here's what happens. Uh, it's an odd verse, but I think this is just, you could see his resolve in this, in this miscellaneous verse in the middle of the story. First uh, Samuel 17, 32 says, David said to Saul, do not let anyone be discouraged by him, by Goliath. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. David said, enough is enough. We're not going to let this this giant come out and blaspheme God's name even one more time. We're not going to live like this anymore. Enough is enough. And when he comes back out, 
I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to step out and I'm going to do what I ought to do. Enough is enough. I had a pastor a long time ago used to tell people, I didn't know what this meant to start with, but he explained it to me. Uh, He said, it's time to fish or cut bait. And you know, for many of us, dabbling in the Christian life, it's time for us to fish or cut bait. It's, It's time for us to to do what we see, what Paul says do here in Ephesians 4, because we believe all of these things now, now, let us live in a way that pleases, pleases the, the Lord. A few weeks ago when we were introducing the book of Ephesians, I wanted to talk about, I wanted to preach on a couple of verses in Acts chapter 19. We ran out of time as we're doing today. Uh, so I skipped on them, but I'm not going to skip them now. I want to go back and just point out these, these two verses, the gospel reached Ephesus for the very first time. And so what happened? What happened when the people of Ephesus heard the gospel? So let me read Acts 19, 18. It says, many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices. And while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone, so they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of, of silver. Listen, church, the Bible says that those people, when they accepted Christ, it wasn't just that they believed some stuff. They changed some stuff. They sacrificed some stuff. Their lives were different because of what they believed. If it's only a belief and not a practice, then it's not genuine Christianity. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, that we're to live like strangers and exiles. The Bible says that that we ought to be a little different, that we ought to be a little odd, if you will, maybe even weird in the eyes of other people because we're motivated by different things, because we have the grace of God, because we're living for eternity. So we ought to be watching things on TV that are different than what others are watching. We ought to be spending our money differently than lost people spend their money. We ought to be raising our children differently than lost people raise their children. Now, we don't need to be obnoxious, of course. Jesus was a friend of sinners. But if we always just fit in, if you just fit in with everybody, then there's reason to be concerned. So number one, we just need to choose a team. Number two, very quickly, we need to take something off. If you look at verse 22, he says, to be renewed, uh, yeah, verse 22, to take off your former way of life the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. We need to identify the sins in our lives that are persistent sins that as Christians we seem to struggle with for a long time, and it's time we just take them off. We need to identify them. You can't take it off until you identify it. And then we need to hate it. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the expression here, take it off, refers to like taking off a dirty shirt. We, we need to see our sins. Uh, imagine if you had spent a half a day cleaning fish down at the dock. <laughs> and you come back in your home and your shirt is just covered with fish guts. And it stinks. And it's, um, it's, just, it's just nasty and obnoxious. And so what do you do? Do you just sit in the recliner and watch a ball game for two or three hours? Do you go to the dinner table and have dinner with your family? Of course not. That is terrible. And and it doesn't matter how rugged a man you are. You can't wait to get that dirty, nasty shirt off of you and get something clean on. We ought to see our sin. We ought to ask God to help us see our sin in the same way. 
you know, there are, there are some sins that when I see them on television or wherever, there are some sins, and I'm sure the same is true of you, that just turn my stomach. When I see certain things, I'm thinking of one now, I just, it just literally makes, makes me sick. But I'm afraid, if I were just honest, that that's more of a cultural thing than it is a godliness thing in my life. My prayer is that God would make my stomach turn at every sin. So to take it off means we recognize what is a sin and that we ask God to help us hate that sin. And then we take it off. What are we, what are we waiting for? If, if now is not the time for you to take it off, then when is going to be a good time? When, when, how could there ever be a better time, whatever sin it is that you're thinking of now, that you struggle with, when will there ever be a better time than right now for us to take that sin off? Uh, when I was uh, years ago taking some training to uh, some gospel, how to share the gospel training, and I remember I went out with some people to observe how they did it in, in this uh, specialized training. And one of the men that took me out repeatedly in this clinic, uh, he was really, really good at, at getting somebody who wasn't ready to make a decision to make a decision. And I'm not even sure this was always a good thing, but he would ask a series of questions of that person and, and I would know as I observed that once he started his series of questions, when he got to the end, they were going to, they were going to make a decision. But, but, but here's one of the questions he would ask. And this, you think about this with the sin that you, that you're reluctant to let it go, to take it off. One of the questions he would ask is, uh, what events in your life would have to happen? What crisis would you have to go through? What disaster would you have to experience that would finally make you want to get serious and make that decision? And then they would think about that, and then he would say, why are you going to wait for God to bring that when you could make the decision today? Listen, church, there's sin in our lives as children of God. God hates that sin, and because God loves us, he wants to see that sin removed and he calls on us to take it off. Why would we wait? What kind of circumstance is going to have to happen in our lives for us to be serious enough to take that off? Why wait until God brings something like that? Let's take it off today. And then the other part, verse 24, he says to put it on, to put it on, and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness. What does it mean to put on the new self? I'll be honest with you. I didn't know when I first read this, and I read a bunch of commentaries, everything I could get my hands on, and what I was convinced of after all that is that none of those guys knew either. Uh, everybody seemed to say something different about it. Uh, what does it mean? You know, the book of Ephesians is so practical, practical. This, this has got to mean something very practical. But then let me take you through my journey just quickly. As I tried to figure out what it means because I was thinking of sins. I need to take some things off. I need to put some things on, whatever that means. So what does it mean? Well, as I, as I looked more closely and just prayed about, verse 24, and to put on the new self, I recognized that, that there is a parallel instruction here in this passage. To put on has to be paired with to take off. 
right? To put on, to take off, it's, it's no coincidence that those two are right next to each other. So whatever it means to put on, it has to be connected with taking off. So what could that mean? Well, then I just decided to continue to read through Ephesians chapter 4. And so I'm going to read two or three verses. You tell me if you see a pattern here. So to take off, to put on, to put on, to take off. But look at verse 25. He says, therefore, putting away, lying, uh, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. You see something similar? He says, put away lying, that's taking off. And how do you do that? He says in that same verse, speak the truth. So take off, put on. If you look at verse 28, he says, let the thief no longer steal. That's taking off. And then it says in the same verse, instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands. That's to put on. If you look at verse 29, it says, no foul language should come from your mouth. That's to take off. But if you continue to read the same verse, it says, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. That's putting on. You see the same thing in verse 31 and 32, and, and you could go on down, and you see it repeated through the book of Ephesians. Here's what it means to put on. It means we need to take off a sin, but at the same time, we need to add on something that serves and honors the Lord. I read one author this week that says it's like a pair of scissors. So one blade of a pair of scissors isn't good for very much. But if you have two blades, the coming together of those two blades is, is worth something, right? That's what makes the scissors functional, valuable. And so what we need to do is we need to have a scissor action here. We need to take something off. You're thinking of a sin. We need to take something off and we need to do it at the same time we put something on. Take off, put on, take off, put on. It's the scissors here that he's describing for us to live a life that will truly honor the Lord. Now, one more thing here and then I'm going to wrap up. The in the original language, the phrase to take off and to put on in verses 22 and 24, that's a, it's an aorist middle um, uh, infinitive. So, so, so what it's talking about is a past tense event, but it's an imperfect past tense event. It's, a, it's an event that has no completion. So here's the best way to understand this. This isn't, as I said a moment ago, some light switch thing. This is something you do all the time to keep on taking off and to keep on putting on. This is something I do every day. I take off, I put on, I take off, I put on. When I pray in the morning, I need to be praying about taking off and putting on. The sin, I'm gonna take off. The, the action, I'm gonna put on, take off, put on. And, and this is a daily, a daily commitment and a daily activity of every Christian. Let me put these, these three commands together. Church, it's time for us to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm no longer going to live like the Gentiles live. I want to identify the sins in my life, be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is pointing his light to. I want to take it off, and I want to put something in its place so that my life will not be like that of the Gentiles, but it might truly bring honor and glory to God. When we, we think about this, I know what the pushback is. Uh, people will say, well, I don't think as a Christian that my sin really matters. And then they'll say, I can't really change. But what we've seen today is that our sin matters. And that with the help of the Holy Spirit, if we're children of God, we can change. Heads bowed, eyes closed for a moment.
For three weeks in a row, we've talked about salvation. And we've learned, if you weren't here, we've learned that it all starts with putting our trust in Jesus Christ. No one is saved because he tries harder, does better, turns over a new leaf. We become children of God because we say that we're hopeless and we surrender to the Lord. And by the, by the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we can be saved. If you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, let it begin there. Let it begin there. But church, let us don't imagine that we can have a faith that does not impact how we live. Let's no longer live like the Gentiles, but let's live lives that honor the Lord. Father in heaven, impress this upon our hearts and may you be honored by how we live. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.